Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing verbs like a turtle. Merkin fool, like squirtle and cake gold. Cold blood is with the Stromsky, I'm a boss. Flip the coin, toss the straws, I'm out of loss. How my brains get busted, slinging letters into couplets. Muck up the subjects, paragraph the This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about taking risks, about giving up or going forward, about my relationship to failure and my twisted limiting definition of what it means, of what it takes to actually leap and hold on through transition. I've been thinking about finding purpose in a life well-lived and what an awful saying TGIF is and what horrible role modeling it is to use it in front of your children. During my spin class, our instructor challenged us to mix things up, to interrupt our routine and go for the peaks and valleys and ditch the straight flat line for our health and for our souls. And that got me thinking about disruption. My guest today is Whitney Johnson. Whitney is the author of Disrupt Yourself, Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work, and Dare, Dream, Do, Remarkable Things Happen When You Dare to Dream. Welcome, Whitney, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Whitney Johnson is a leading thinker on driving corporate innovation through personal disruption. She co-founded Rose Park Advisors, an investment firm with Clayton Christensen, and was an institutional investor, ranked analyst for eight straight consecutive years. She's wife and mother, a blogger, and frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review. She was named one of Fortune 55's most influential women on Twitter and a Future Thinker finalist by Management Thinkers 50. She's a co-founder of the 40 Over 40 list and active in her community and church. And she's probably done a number of other impressive things since I, I read this bio. And so I want to just start with some basic definitions about what it means to be disruptive. And maybe we could start with disruptive innovation, um, Christensen's theory about disruptors secure their initial foothold at the low end of the market, offering inferior, low-margin products. At first, they are weak in a position, but often go unnoticed or ignored, then gain footing and move up the market. Sure. Yeah, so so great. You did a great summary of that. So disruptive innovation is a low-end or new market innovation that eventually upends an industry. So some examples that we're all very familiar with are General Motors was disrupted or upended by Toyota. And Sears was disrupted by Walmart and Target. And Amazon, or excuse me, Barnes and Noble and Borders by Amazon. And now more recently, we've got the yellow cab industry being disrupted by Uber and uh, the hotel industry by Airbnb. And so what I've taken is this, this, this framework that we typically use um, to help us understand how products and services and um, companies and countries are disrupted and then applied that to the individual. And, and just to dive a little bit deeper on that, could you maybe explain why Toyota succeeded as a disruptor and then TiVo didn't? Yes, absolutely. So, so recapping quickly, so a disruptor, again, secures its foothold at the low end of the market. And as you said, initially, its products are inferior, its position is very weak. Um, something like in Amazon, when they entered the market, Barnes and Noble and Borders could have actually crushed them like a cockroach, but they didn't. Um, market leaders rarely bother because it's just a silly little product. Now, um, and, and then of course, they are also motivated by moving up market and eventually they're able to upend the industry. The, the difference between someone like a Toyota and a TiVo is that TiVo introduced a very fantastic product but it was something that the incumbent, basically the cable companies, was able to co-opt and just add to their given service. And so it basically made TiVo irrelevant. And is there a balance or sort of is it is it just a matter of timing and luck for the disruptor to be 
quiet enough on the scene that the big guys don't either really notice it or don't care enough about it? Is there some sort of subtlety or magic to that? I actually, um, I would say that if you're going to compete with being incumbent head on, then you want to try to stay invisible. But disruptors almost by definition are invisible um, and under the radar because people ignore them. Again, it's just a silly little product. We don't need to pay attention to this. Our, our customers won't want this. They won't like it. They won't care about it. It doesn't do any of the jobs that our customers need them to do. They basically dismiss it as a toy. And so it's able to stay, it's basically hiding you know, in plain sight, but because they don't see it actually as a threat. And they're also sort of forced oftentimes to use really different methods in the industry. I'm just thinking about, you mentioned Airbnb, that when they got their idea of literally having blow up mattresses in people's homes, they then went to Austin at the South by Southwest and just started pretty much vandalizing posters to, to start marketing. Right. And, and, and as you said, they started with something that the, uh, the hotel industry would have completely turned up their nose at, right? You know, like inflatable mattresses inside of someone's apartment. They would have said, that's silly. That's ridiculous. No one will care. No one's ever going to use that. And it turns out. So for a long time, they weren't aware of it. But once they even became aware of it, they just dismissed it as something irrelevant. And then it's too late, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, so you extrapolated from that to disrupting yourself. And um, what is a personal disruption or personal disruptor, disrupting yourself, and, and why do you care about it? Hmm. Well, let me explain what it is first, and then I'll explain why I care about it. So um, a personal disruption, so it can take a couple of different forms. So if you're a low-end disruptor, um, it's going to be oftentimes happen um, potentially at the beginning of your career. So you look at, um, you want to get into a new industry, you don't know anything about the industry, and you're willing to basically start at the bottom um, and work your way up. And you don't necessarily know anything because it's just, and it doesn't matter. And so for example, um, in my career, when I moved to New York, I had just graduated from college, I majored in music, um, and I decided that I wanted to work on Wall Street. Well, um, I could not have walked in the door, in the front door, because they would have looked at me and said, you're a music major, um, we're not going to hire you. And so I had to start as a low-end disruptor by starting on Wall Street as a secretary, working for a retail sales broker. So basically walking in the secretarial side door. But once I got in the door, then that positioned me to be able to move up. Um, so that's, that's what a low-end disruptor is. Now, what I mean by disrupting yourself is effectively becoming... Um, getting to the point where you are the GM and you decide to disrupt yourself by offering a very low-end car, or it would be the equivalent of the hotel industry like a Hyatt or a Hilton offering something very, very low-end akin to Airbnb that, that puts them at risk of cannibalizing their margins, and yet they do it because they know it's the only way over the long term to remain viable as a business. And so on the personal front, then, what I did is I had gotten to the top of the curve or to sort of the top of my career, I was, you know, making a lot of money. And I said, I'm going to leave, I'm going to try something new, I'm going to become an entrepreneur. So that's, that's basically what disrupting yourself means is to take your very powerful or comfortable um, perch and to jump off to that off of that and try something new. And prior to that, uh, Whitney, you were disrupted without disrupting yourself, but from external forces when you were in college, and that forced you to make an unexpected shift. Could you talk about that a little bit and maybe how that prepared you to then be more confident in 
later making a decision to disrupt your own path? Yeah, you make a really good point because sometimes we disrupt ourselves and sometimes we're disrupted. And in either case, there is an opportunity to grow. I think um, I think you're probably referring to. I'm not sure exactly what you're talking to about in college. Are you talking about when I had to earn earn the money? Yeah, when you had to, oh, to quit okay. and then go into Silicon Valley. And, okay, and got it. All right, just making sure. No, no, sorry, I uh, should have explained. Yeah, so um, so I started my my freshman year in college. <laughs> there were other times you were disrupted. Yeah, I don't exactly. know about many times. <laughs> times that I've been disrupted. So I had to make sure which, <laughs> which one it one, was. Which one should we focus on? Um, so um, a- after my freshman year in college, actually my first semester of my sophomore year, my mom had told me that she was going to be able to pay for me to go to college. But my parents had gotten divorced in my senior year. And she just said, you know, no money, you've got to pay for it, pay your own way, which meant that I couldn't keep going to school. I had to go home and work for a year. And um, so that was, and, and actually during that year, um, I was originally from San Jose. And so I, I got to have this experience of working in Silicon Valley for a year, basically as a girl Friday. But this gave me this really, you know, important experience of I was, I was disrupted, but by having that year of working, it was my first taste of the workplace, but also, um, by having that experience, I realized, huh, I can make my own way. And from there on out, either through, working part-time or scholarships, I was able to come out of college completely debt-free. And so that pushback that happened to me or that step back that was forced upon me, effectively disrupting myself, um, it gave me the confidence that I could actually make my own way through college and, and through my career in general. And then when you were in New York and you were working as a secretary and you decided, you know, I can do what these guys are doing. And then step by step proved that, that that was true. And when you talk about that in your book, it seems that and anyone that knows that environment, um, or I read any of the books about what was happening in that period on Wall Street, um, I'm doubting that it was a very supportive experience being <laughs> a woman in that position. Yeah. And that at one point you were even sort of patronizingly ignored as sort of your success because, well, it was just because of your soft skills. And yet those are skills that were not thought highly of at all in that industry. What gave you the confidence to decide that you were going to go for that and then continue to do it? And where did you find support to bolster yourself up during those challenges? Okay, well, great questions. I I guess um, to to sort of paint the picture. So it's 1989. um, I've gotten to New York with my husband so he can go to school. And um, I started as a secretary working for this retail sales broker. So I go to work every day and I'm sitting there as a secretary taking orders, et cetera. And then there's this big bullpen right next to me. And again, it's 1989. So it's the era of liars poker and bonfire, the vanities and working girls. So I, I'm sitting there and these, there are all these people in the bullpen and they're all guys and they're trying to get people to open up accounts, calling people, cold calling, because people still did, did that then. And, you know, saying things to them like, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know this is a good deal and throw down your pom-poms and get in the game, like really sort of aggressive language. And for me, at first, I was really offended because I had been a, a cheerleader in high school. But then the more I thought about it, I was like, you know what, 
I got to throw down my own pom-poms and get in the game because I'm just sitting here on the sideline. And so I think that one of the things that gave me the confidence was just this sense of competition. Like I wasn't going to let those boys beat me. You know, I remember being in fifth grade and playing dodgeball and just like, I'm going to be the best person that plays dodgeball here. And if I'm better than the boys, like even better. And so I think that sense of competition kind of fueled my, my desire. And um, I don't know if I was really confident. I guess at one level I was confident, but on the other level, I just was hungry and I wanted this and this was the brass ring and I was going to go after it. But as you said, certainly people were not very, um, very supportive of that. Um, I did eventually, not everyone wasn't unsupportive because I did have a boss that allowed me to move up from secretary to investment banker. But certainly there were times when, um, uh, you know, I remember when I was pregnant with my son and um, who's now 19 and wanted to move from one area of investment banking to another. And people just looked at me and said, you know, you're not going to come back. We're sure you're not going to come back. You're going to have a baby. You can't really do M&A. You know, we're sure that you can't. And so what are you going to do? You know that it's not fair, but you just keep going and you keep moving forward. And so I think that um, you asked the question about confidence. I guess at some level, I just, my mom always worked. Maybe that makes a difference. And so somehow deeply, I felt like I could perhaps because of the role model of my mother. And then also my husband has always been really supportive, like never once ever said to me, you can't do that. I was thinking about the title of your book and I was thinking about disrupt yourself and the word disruption and I looked it up, <laughs> exact definition, <laughs> and I thought, you know, it has such a negative connotation in our society and, and our culture even fosters routine. You go into the coffee shop, oh, do you want your usual? <laughs> they seem disappointed when you say you want something different. Um, and so with your book, you say that this book will teach you how to shift into hypergrowth and when you're learning crest to do what great disruptors do to catch a new wave. So I want to talk a little bit now about surfing the S curve. And first I've got to ask, have you surfed? You have a couple references throughout the book to surfing. You know what? I've surfed once and it was really fun. And it's something that I would like to do again. Um, I, there's this thing called ladies surf camp in northern Mexico. And I think it would be really fun to do. But um, just that image, and maybe because I grew up in California, and I had a boyfriend or two that surfed, I don't know, that just image is really, really powerful for me. Um, so let me start by explaining what the S curve is. And then we can talk about what I mean by surfing the S curves. So the S curve is something that was found or was started or I'm going to turn off my phone because it's blinking at me. So the S-curve was developed by Everett M. Rogers in 1962. And he developed this to help explain um, how, how innovations are adopted. And so it's, it's S-curve. You know, if you think about it, you've got the low under the base of the S. And you know that typically, therefore, growth is going to be very, very slow. And so that's the base of the S. But then once you reach sort of 10% penetration of a market, you're going to reach this tipping point, which allows you to go into hypergrowth. And then you're on to that sleek, steep back of the curve. And that's, that's this sort of really hyper, hyper growth period. And then at the top of the curve or 90%, the growth tapers off. And I'll, I'll give you an example so that people can kind of really capture this in their mind. So if you take a company like Facebook, Facebook, um, Assuming a market opportunity of a billion people, Facebook, it took roughly four years for Facebook to reach penetration of 10%. 
So on that low base of the curve. But then once it reached that critical mass of 100 million users, it entered hypergrowth. So it moved into that sleek, steep part of the curve. And then over the next four years, it added not 100 million, but 800 million users. So it was growing really, really quickly. And then it got to the top of the curve. And, um, and now we can quibble over whether or not exactly it's reached saturation, but we all know that the rate of growth has begun to slow. So for us as individuals, what does that mean? How does that apply to us? Well, it also helps us, this S-curve, understand the psychology of disruption or the psychology of trying something new. So for example, you decide that you want to learn how to golf or you want to learn how to surf or you want to take on a new job. You know that at the bottom of that curve, before you reach sort of hypergrowth, it's going to look like you are making absolutely no progress at all, even though you're working really, really hard. But then as you put in the hours and hours and hours of practice and you're basically mapping against the 10,000 hour rule, so it's maybe a thousand hours of practice, you enter hypergrowth. And that is the exciting part of the curve. The part where all of your neurons are firing and you're learning and you're growing and developing and you feel competent and therefore increasingly confident. So no longer discouraged, you're now feeling confident. And then you get to the top of the curve where things have become easy. You can put it on automatic, no, you know, no sweat at all. But because you're no longer enjoying the feel-good effects of learning, your sense of boredom and complacence can kick in. And so if you get to that top of that curve and you start getting complacent, you can actually precipitate your own demise because you're bored. And so once you get there, if you don't jump or are not allowed for some reason to jump to a new curve, then that plateau becomes a precipice. And so what this means for us as individuals is that we may feel like we want to be at the top of the curve where things are comfortable, where we're on top of that, you know, we've got that perch, things are easy, no problem at all. But because we're not learning, we're not happy. And so we have to then jump to a new curve. And so, and then this cycle begins again. And so that's why I talk about disrupting yourself is that it may be hard to do, but when, but we actually crave it and need it in order to continue to move forward and to progress and, and therefore be happy with our, our lives. It's funny. I hadn't thought about this when I was reading your book, but now it seems so obvious that your background and training as a musician all the way through college really gave you some building blocks to see this S-curve happen. And so often I think our kids these days think if they're not good at something right away, oh, well, you know, they, they shouldn't do it or they don't want to do it or they can't do it. And I always say, well, you know, it's like learning an instrument. You have to practice. And and um, I think it's so important for us to understand how that works so that we have more faith in jumping on and then also stick to it when we're around getting around that first corner of the S. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it, you know, Steve Jobs, who we all revere as an, as an innovator said that, you know, at least 50% of trying something new is perseverance. And so when we're at the low end of that curve, it's going to look like, you know, if we know that we're just going to have to put in that hours before it looks like anything happens, it makes it much easier for us to persevere. And you, you had said too that Woody Allen had said 80% of success was showing up. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and I so- took some flack for <laughs> quoting him, by the way. Um, but, you know, the fact is, is that I think it's true. Yeah, I really yeah. do think it's true. And you touched on another element of that, that 
um, in your book, you, you explained a little in more depth that the market risk versus competitive risk, and that in this type of behavior, disrupting yourself, you're involved in market risk, and that that is preferable and actually even healthier. Could you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So one of the reasons that the odds of success are higher for, um, for a person pursuing a disruptive course or thinking about disrupting is that you're taking on market versus competitive risk. And let me provide the definition. So, so competitive risk, let's start with that because that's typically what we go after. Um, one of your colleagues comes to you and says, you know, there's this big opportunity out there. We need to go after this and I've got the projections and the numbers and all the data to prove it. Well, if they've got all the data and the projections, it's likely that someone else has scoped out the market. They're already there. There's a kingpin and it's not you. And so that's competitive risk. And you have to gauge if you can compete and win. Maybe you can win, but you have to figure out if you can compete. You know they're customers, but again, can you get those customers? So that's competitive risk. Then there's market risk where someone may come to you and say, you know what, I don't even know if there's a market because I and I don't have productions because again, I don't know if there's a market, but I think there's this need not being met. Um, so if there are customers, then as the first mover, you're favored to own the market and that's market risk. And when you're willing to take on market risk versus competitive risk, according to the theory of disruption, you're actually six times more likely to be successful than if you take on competitive risk because you're creating the market and you, you're basically becoming the incumbent. The difficulty with all of this is that we say, okay, then I'm going to just take market risk. The di reason it's difficult is because competitive risk feels to us kind of in our gut less risky because it's more certain and we tend to like certainty. So if we can say to ourselves, this is going to feel uncertain, it's going to feel scary, it's going to feel lonely because I'm playing where no one else is playing, then my odds of success are going to be six times higher, then it makes it easier for us to deal with and live in that uncertainty involved in market risk, whether it's a business or whether it's our life. So let's talk about another element that maybe at first is counterintuitive, but then once you dig it a little deeper, it, it makes perfect sense. The idea that it's important to embrace constraints and that if those constraints aren't imposed on you, you want to impose some on yourself to gain traction and, and become grounded. Um, could you dive yes, a little deeper into that? Absolutely. I, I'm fascinated by constraints. And, you know, until a couple of years ago, I, I sort of said constraints were important, but I didn't really understand that they were really important until I became an entrepreneur. So um, whenever you're trying something new, you're taking on this market risk, right? You're playing where no one else is playing. You need feedback. I mean, you, you need to know how am I doing? You know, am I, am I making progress? What does this look like? Well, one of the best ways to do that is to impose constraints, to give yourself something to bump up against. If you think about skateboarders, for example, they're some of the quickest learners in the world because they receive this incredibly fast and useful feedback. Like every action, every move has an immediate consequence. And so, and oh, and let me tell you one other story and then I'll go into a little bit more. Like uh, Jaws, I don't know if, I mean, we've all seen that movie or heard of it. Um, Steven Spielberg, he wanted to use a mechanical shark for that film, but the mechanical shark malfunctioned. It just wasn't working. And so he's now over budget and he's behind schedule. And so he decides to shoot the film from the shark's point of view. And that sharks, you know, leave the music and the imagination and let that do the rest. 
And so the question becomes, was that film successful in spite of or because of the constraints? So for us as individuals, when we're trying something new, what are the constraints that we might have? It might be a lack of time. It might be a lack of money. It might be a lack of expertise. It might be a lack of buy-in or approval from the people that we need to need to buy into the idea or our stakeholder to move it forward. But the fact is, is those constraints, as they give us something up to bump up against, we start to get information and we can figure out, okay, huh, I've gotten information that's telling me that I'm still on the right curve, so I'm going to keep going. Or that information will say to you, you're not on the right curve, maybe you need to jump to a new curve. So they're actually very, very beneficial to us. All right, we're going to take a short break. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. I'm here with Whitney Johnson. We are talking about disrupting ourselves and the benefits of doing so. And we'll be back in just a moment. This is KDPI 88.5 FM Ketchum. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm here with Whitney Johnson, and we are talking about disruption and disrupting ourselves. And I want to talk a little bit, Whitney, about mindset, because more and more we are learning and verifying that you can't make and sustain change, true change, without a shift in mindset. And part of that is our, in this area that we have to tackle is our relationship to risk. And you had mentioned, I think, just a moment ago that people prefer known risk to ambiguity. Right. So right. how do we deal with that and be willing to jump on the first S-curve and then especially <laughs> jump on the next one? Right. Well, I think one of the ways that we do start to deal with it is to educate ourselves and to be able to say, all right, I know that this is going to feel more scary but in fact, it's less risky. And by educating ourselves in that respect, I do think it makes a difference. I think the other thing that's helpful, and you mentioned mindset, is to look at the work of Carol Dweck, where she talks about the idea of a fixed versus a growth mindset. And oftentimes, when we're not willing to try something new, we have this fixed mindset where we look at ourselves, our intelligence, our abilities as fixed. And if we try something new, there and it doesn't work, we consider ourselves to be somehow flawed or damaged in some way. Whereas if we have a growth mindset, then we're willing to try new things because we know that we can get better. And in the trying, it doesn't have anything to do, any impact on our essential worth, but in fact that we're just trying something new and that we will be happier if we will take those risks rather than feeling stuck. Because at least for me, the worst thing that could ever happen to me actually is to feel that I am stuck rather than moving forward and progressing. Another element you talked about for successful disruption is matching unmet needs and distinctive strengths. So, and you talk about this in both books. I really liked your wording of it, paying attention to our strong moments that are clues to innate talents. I love thinking about strengths because I think that we dismiss them. Let, let me explain what I mean. So in order to play where no one else is playing, to take on this market risk, to be able to move up this S-curve that we talked about, you've got to play to your distinctive strengths. And a distinctive strength is something that you do well that other people within your sphere do not. For example, maybe you are really brilliant at marketing, but if you're in a room with 10 other marketers, then that's not so helpful. But if you're brilliant at marketing, but surrounded by nine 
computer programmers, then suddenly you've got this distinctive strength that really can allow you to contribute in a very meaningful way. Let me mention three ways that you can identify your strengths and then we can talk about why people are reluctant to actually use their strengths. So one of them is to consider what makes you feel strong, which you just alluded to a moment ago. So Marcus Buckingham has said that our strengths clamor for our attention in the most basic way because using them makes you feel strong. You feel inquisitive and you feel invigorated and you feel successful. Another way to figure out what makes you feel strong is to think about what you do when you're under stress. And I don't necessarily mean eating a quart of haagen ice cream or going out and getting sloshed. But in fact, is it is it doing a spreadsheet? Is it making a sale? Is it taking a walk or going on a run? Those things that you do when you're under stress are helping to restore order. And they restore order because you feel in control and you feel in control because you feel strong. The trick is, is to use that strength deliberately and not just when you're in a bind. Another way that you can figure out what your strengths are is to look at the compliments that you get very, very frequently. Sometimes you may dismiss them. Um, it may also be that you just say to, your, say to the other person, I'm just doing my job. You may also think, oh, that compliment again. <laughs> Why can't they compliment me on this other thing that I worked really, really, really hard to learn? People tend to overvalue what they are not and undervalue what they are. And that compliment is likely pointing you to this thing that is a really, really important strength. And so, again, it's important to play to that strength. And why I said that people tend to not use their strengths is because when they're applying for a job, even they may say to them, say to the person who's hiring them, I do all these five things really well. And the person and and almost always those five things that they do really well are things that they worked hard to learn how to do. And frequently the things that come very easily and very naturally to them and which are in fact their superpowers, they don't mention because they don't value them. And so the trick to all of this is to say I'm going to play where no one else is playing. I'm going to go after market risk that feels uncertain but I know it's less risky and I'm going to use my strengths or my superpowers that I don't really value, but everyone else does. So I'm going to own them and I pair those two together. And again, I'm much more likely to be successful. I liked your other superpower reference, which was the transformer mindset. And, yes. and the idea of improv theater, which I think is so important and, and people might not realize um, what the key role of improv theater is. And then if you might say that and then how it connects with the, the transformer mindset and why that's important when you're disrupting. Right. So um, the whole idea of improv is, is to extricate from your language the word but and to add the word and. So anytime someone says to you, I'd like you to, to do this and you want to say, I'd like to do this, but instead you say, I, I think this is important to do and, and then you start figuring out what has to happen next. And that's changing of those two simple, simple words completely transforms your mindset and your constraint turns into an opportunity as opposed to something that impedes your progress. And what would you say either from your personal experience or in general from your research, what are the things that stop most people from disrupting? I think the biggest thing is fear. Fear of something. 
it can be a lot of times people will say it's money but I think more often it's fear of a loss of status or fear of a loss of security or fear of a loss of well-being, um, fear of a loss of identity. I remember one gentleman uh, when I was talking about disruption said to me, I have 10 years worth of savings in the bank and yet I still won't try something new. And so that said to me that it wasn't about the money, it was about something else, at which point you can ask him the question or we can ask ourselves the question, well, if it's not about the money, then what is it? What What is happening that's keeping me from moving forward? And most of us are, um, most of us struggle with fear. And so the thing that we have to ask ourselves is, okay, if I'm afraid to jump to this new curve, what this means is that I can't say to myself, wow, all these exciting things are going to happen if I jump to a new curve, which would be promotion focused. Um, instead, you say to yourself, if I don't jump to this new curve, what will happen to me? What will happen if I stand still? And I'll give you an example because I think this is really important and it, it's a realization I had just in the last couple of months. I always thought I was promotion focused. You know, I'm going to go after and climb this mountain because I talk about dreaming is the engine of disruption. I do truly believe this. But there's a big piece of me that's also prevention focused. The reason being is that not too long ago, I had to give a, a talk or a presentation. And after it was over, I hadn't done a very good job. And I wasn't very happy with myself. And I was talking to my husband and he said to me, here's what you need to do, Whitney. You just need to, every time you get ready to give a presentation, is ask yourself, how will I feel when this is over if I have bombed? And if you're okay bombing, then don't prepare. If you're not okay bombing, then do prepare. And I realized, oh boy, that's being prevention focused. That's making sure, that, that's saying to myself, I'm afraid enough that I better do something. And I think if we can get ourselves in the mindset of, okay, it's not motivating me to try something new, but it is motivating me to be stuck and to stand still, then we're more likely to make that jump even when we're scared. So let's talk about where failure fits into the um, process of being disruptive and disrupting ourselves or in disruptive innovation um, because it seems like it's an integral part that it can't be be avoided but ro what role does it play and how can we adjust our response our natural response or our cultural response of sort of shame and the, the damaging response to it when we're embarking on on disruption I think there are two types of failure so there's one type that that we're all pretty comfortable with is that sort of simple iteration. I'm going to try this, then I'm going to try that, and I'm going to try this, and it doesn't work, and then I'm going to try again. And there, are, all of us have areas of our lives where actually where we're actually pretty comfortable doing that. So, sort of the iterating around an idea might be trying a new recipe or something where we feel like the stakes are really low and our identity isn't wrapped up in it at all. The failure that I'm talking about is this failure where our identity does get wrapped up in it. And so we try something new and it doesn't work and it's a bomb and we're devastated. So, you know, like for me, I've bombed speeches in front of hundreds of people. I've been fired. I've backed businesses that have imploded. And, and in those moments, I felt I was devastated. I was embarrassed. I was humiliated. Um, and I was heartbroken. And what I've realized is that so often we don't stop and allow ourselves 
to be sad, to be, to grieve over this thing that we wanted to accomplish and it didn't accomplish. And the reason that we have to be willing to grieve is that the energy that we, is that if we, if we don't grieve, we're actually sublimating our sadness. Like we're sublimating the feeling that we felt for this. And it's that same feeling once we're over grieving that's going to allow us to jump back in and try anew. And so part of that process of, of jumping to new curves and not always having them work is to be willing to grieve. And then once we've grieved, to ditch the shame and understand that when we buy into shame, we're allowing the failure to become a referendum on us. And, and failure does not limit dreaming and disruption. Shame does. And shame actually has no place. And I, I love Brene Brown's distinction of I did something badly versus I am bad. And that, that being able to separate your sense of identity from an action is, is the difference between healthy, what she calls guilt or, or learning versus shame from, from what we see as a failure. Absolutely. And I've learned, I mean, I've quoted her in the book. I've learned a tremendous amount from her. And I think... It's very, very, very helpful to us all. And something you focus on in um, disrupting that's distinctive is the type of planning that it entails. And this type of planning that entails has much more likelihood at all different junctures for failure. And so if we could talk a little bit about a, a conventional planning versus discovery-driven planning. Yeah, so conventional planning is where you say, um, and, and conventional planning obviously has a place, has its place where you say, I'm going to do these 10 things. And once I do these 10 things, so for example, I'm going to take these 10 courses. And once I take these 10 courses, I'll graduate with a degree in X. That's conventional planning. Uh, discover driven planning is where you say, I want to get a degree. Um, but I don't know what I'm going to get my degree in and I don't want, know what I want to major in. So I'm going to take one course. And after I take that one course, let's say in biology, I'll decide, Oh, I really like biology. I'm going to take another course in biology. So, you know, you want to get a degree. So that's the goal, but you're willing to discover your way to, to, um, to the goal and understand that the goal may change, but that eventually you want to get a degree. And what's interesting about this is, and why it's so important, is that when you're disrupting, you're playing where no one else is playing. You don't know if there's a market there. It's a yet-to-be-defined market. And so you have to figure out, figure your, discover your way there. The good news is, is that 70% of all successful new businesses end up with a strategy different than the one they initially pursued. And I would argue that probably 70, if not 80 or 90% of all lives, um, successful lives end up with a strategy different from the one that they had, they started out with in their 20s. Um, and so that's a very important part of this disruption because you just, you, you can't develop a step-by-step -step plan. You have to take a step forward and gather feedback and adapt accordingly. I think that was one, one of the favorite questions of mine that I saw in your book when you said personal disruptors, they start to ask different questions. And you said, to achieve my baseline level of happiness, what do I need to accomplish and what am I willing to give up to make this happen? Mm -hmm. I'm glad you liked that. And I think it's important because also connected with that, you talk about 
a new way of looking at careers and maybe a place to live or if you're choosing colleges or a major or a job and you frame it a little different way but I thought it was really had a major impact and it well what will it do for me in evaluating the functional and emotional job that you are hiring something to do yes that is very helpful so what do I mean when I say that so if I buy a house um, I'm hiring the house to do a couple of jobs for me. The first job I'm hiring to do is to put a roof over my head. And I think that's pretty universal. But then I'm also hiring it to do some emotional jobs. And for you and for me, we may hire our house to do very different emotional jobs. Some people might hire it just to have a place that they can call their own. Um, some people may hire it because they want to have a really big garden in a place where they can spend time outdoors. Some people may want a really big house so that they can impress other people. It may be lots of different reasons. And so the thing that's really important for us whenever we're disrupting or taking on a new job is to figure out what job we're hiring that job to do for us. In addition to making money, what else do we want to get out of that? And And by the same token is to think about what job is your boss hiring you to do? There may be sort of this functional sort of job description of what they want you to do, but there's also an emotional job. And almost always I would say when people leave a job, it's not for functional reasons. It's because it's no longer doing the emotional job that they had hired it to do. And I think this is such a fabulous analytical skill. And, and maybe people that are by nature analytical, which I'm guessing you are, just sort of do it automatically. Was it something that you had consciously done throughout your career? Had you thought about the, the choices and problems in this way? Or was it something that you realized you'd been doing when you, when you started to write the book? I would say it's something I've realized I've been doing and certainly become aware of as I got familiar with this jobs to be done framework that, um, that was popularized by Clayton. And I, uh, the person who first developed uh, his name is escaping me in this moment. But um, of really being able to parse out what I was trying to get done, it made such a difference for me in my personal life, in my professional life, and then certainly for startups as they're trying to analyze you know, whether or not there's a market there for their product. If you can look at the functional and the emotional, it makes it much easier to figure out if there's actually something there. And so do disruptors make good employees? I think that's a great question. And I think the answer is uh, if they're disruptive, but not too disruptive, right? Um, I think they make great employees because they're trying something new. I think you also need people who are... Um, Actually, no, I'm going to reframe that. They, Yes, they make good employees. What I will say is that you need to have a combination of people who are at the low end and the middle and at the high end of the curve. So some people who have reached mastery and can act as mentors, some people who are disrupting and starting out the very beginning, then you've got people in the middle who are in their sweet spot. But a disruption, being a disruptor, in the negative way of, you know, getting sent to detention, no. But a disruptor who is always being willing to try something new and to do the work to make sure that when they're jumping to new curves, they're actually inviting others to jump to those new curves and de-risking it for other people, I would say that disruptors make great employees. So let's talk about some of the other ways that disruptors need to, to move because it's not this track you start and go straight. They're moving sideways, backwards at times, and and um, and down. So 
how what are the new metrics that you have to apply either as an employer or to yourself and um, in relationship to success right so again when you disrupt you you are basically taking some type of step back or step down or a lateral step and so the question becomes um, as you said you can't just say well I'm making more money now right um, it might be that you've decided to disrupt yourself and become an entrepreneur. So you can't measure yourself by how much money you're making because you'll be an abysmal you know, failure. Um, the question may be, okay, so how much time am I spending with my children? Do I have fewer headaches? You know what? So you, whenever you try something new, you've got to come up with metrics. And you mean literally, literally fewer headaches because there was an example in your book of someone saying that. Yes. That they literally had 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 what five or more headaches a month, and that that had stopped. Exactly, exactly. So, so you basically are looking at whatever you're trying um, that is new is to say, okay, if I'm going to make progress here, um, what does progress look like, and what metrics can I use to measure that progress? The one thing I will say is that regardless of whether you're down, sideways, or up, the one metric that always matters is are you actually showing up? Like, are you, are you throwing yourself into this? Are you trying? Are you there? Are you engaged? Because that metric will allow for a lot of interim failures and mistakes because you're fully engaged in the process. And does a metric need to change at various stages of the curve? Do you need to revisit it and reevaluate what, what your metrics are? Uh, yeah, because at the very beginning of the curve, you're gonna, going to almost always have a lot of constraints that you have to embrace. And you may be looking at um, how well, you know, how well did I manage my money? You know, how, how little did I spend? And as you move up the curve, it may be that you've got plenty of money, but it's that you've got to spend that money more efficiently or you're investing in people differently. So as you move along the curve, yes, your, your metrics um, likely will need to change. And what about, I was laughing at, in your other book, you had mentioned that your family mantra was uh, Johnson's don't quit. But you talk about when it's time to jump ship and finding a new S-curve. So for you, I would guess that might be a challenging moment when you feel like, okay, is this quitting or is this just the timing's right to jump to a new, a new curve? Yeah, so I would say that... Um... So the question you're asking is, are you at the low end of the curve or on the wrong curve, right? Yeah, yeah. How <laughs> Which do you is know? It? <laughs> is, it, is it the hard point where it's like, yeah. no, just head down, pedal harder? Or right. is it the time to say, oh, this isn't the curve I thought, or it's not quite the right curve, or it's not about iteration, it's about switching farther right. than that? Yeah, it's a great question. So, so what I will say, first of all, is that when you say when I've said that the odds of success are higher, six times higher, that moves from 6% to 36%. So it means that there's still um, a 64% chance that it's the wrong curve. So there are four, four things that I think about that can be helpful to you or questions you can ask yourself to decide if you're on the wrong curve or you just don't know if you're on the right curve yet. The first is, are you taking on market versus competitive risk, which we just talked about a little bit. So playing where no one else is playing, it might feel scary and lonely. That doesn't mean it's the wrong curve. It just probably means that you potentially are on the right curve. The second question is, 
are you playing to your strengths? You know, as you're doing this work or trying to be on this curve, does it make you feel strong? Does it feel good to be doing? The third is really a correlate to that, corollary to that is, is it hard but not frustrating? Because if things are hard, then you need to persevere. But if you find yourself frustrated and anxious, then it may be that this is not the right curve. Um, and then the fourth thing that you can look at is, again, this comes back to metrics, is whatever metric you've, cho you've chosen to decide whether or not you're progressing, are, is it increasing or is it flatlining or is it coming down? So for example, you started a new job. Am I asking my boss for help only five times a day versus seven times a day this week versus last week, right? And so you pick whatever metric it is to help you measure your progress. And if those four things are in place, then then I would say to you, then you need to continue to persevere until you have enough information to know that you're on the wrong curve. Um, and so that's how I think about it in terms of wrong curve or still too early to know. I want to talk just in our last few minutes a little bit about community and maybe establishing some sort of community for support. I know in any creative endeavor, it's so important to have, even if it's a tiny circle, one person even, but somebody that is there to support you while you are trying to disrupt the status quo, which you're doing in a creative endeavor and you're doing it when you're disrupting yourself or um, technology or an industry. And you met Clayton Christensen through community building and outreach. How important is it to find support and, and why? It's vital. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we don't, we don't dream in isolation. We just don't. And I think, um, and, and in fact, in the, at the very beginning of my book, I, you know, I devoted it or dedicated it to my husband who always says jump. I think that for every disruptor, there needs to be someone who is, or, or let me put it a different way. I'll use a different metaphor because I think it's more apt here. I think we need to learn how to be harbors and I think we need to learn how to be ships. And I think in whenever someone's disrupting, they're in, in the phase or mode where they're being the ship. But there needs to be a harbor as well and vice versa. And so I do think that a community of support, because we don't dream in isolation, we don't disrupt in isolation, we need people who can give us feedback, who are our truth tellers, who um, will allow us to be you know, the hero of our story, who will encourage us, who will say, add a girl or add a boy. And then in turn, when they're ready to disrupt or to be the ship, and we then we it's our turn to be the harbor. And so I think there's very it's a very powerful symbiosis there. And um, you just you can't do it alone. And is your husband a disruptor? <laughs> is he tend more to be a, a harbor? He tends more to be a harbor. And so, you know, we just actually moved to um, central Virginia. My husband has a PhD in microbiology, and for 10 years, he was the lead parent in our family. My work was very busy. It was, I was traveling a lot, and we felt like one, one parent needed to be home with our children. And so after, he was an associate professor at UMass Medical School when he came out of the workforce. Um, last year, our oldest child left to go on a mission for our church. Our daughter is a freshman in high school. My husband was ready to go back to work. And he, you know, it was very difficult to on-ramp. It's difficult for men. But when he got the opportunity to on-ramp to be a low-end disruptor um, at an up-and-coming liberal arts college in 
in Central Virginia called Southern Virginia University. We upended our lives and moved from Boston um, to uh, Central Virginia. And so I, in that sense, was disrupted. Um, he was a low-end disruptor. And so it gave us an opportunity after many years of me being more of the ship and him more of the harbor to now allow him to be more of the ship and me the harbor. I love that term, lead parent. We're going to have to hashtag that. <laughs> that is, that's Anne Marie Slaughter. Thank, thanks to her, because I think it's a lovely way of it, describing it. It really is. It's great. And I love that, that, and I know you had mentioned at some point earlier in your career, you, he, you guys sold the house you were in for you to be a disruptor. And so I love that, that you guys are, are moving for, uh, literally for one another. Yes. <laughs> that says a lot. Okay, so we have just two minutes, and I've got to throw this in. Our current political landscape, we have lots of disruptors, <laughs> good and bad on the scene. Um, people who are coming in and running campaigns that are so different from any other campaigns, pretty much the worst of, of all the past few centuries. But um, any thoughts on that? On well, first of all, it's fascinating. Um, it's fascinating to me. Uh, I mean, it puts me in a quandary because I have no idea who I'm going to vote for. But beyond that, from an analytical perspective, I think Donald Trump is the, you know, the, the consummate disruptor, consummate disruptor. And um, because he came in at the low end and all of the, you know, establishment, Republican establishment, and really everyone, right, looked at him and said, ha, he's a joke, right? Low end toy, dismiss him, dismiss him until everyone realized, wow, he's disrupting. He's got, you know, he's got, he's got some traction. And now it looks like he will be the Republican nominee. I think one of the difficulties for the US government in general is that we become very, you know, sort of fat and happy, and we don't disrupt and we don't innovate unless we're forced to. Um, so it, it is fascinating. And um, I think the question we all need to ask ourselves is, what's making it possible for him to disrupt, right? Um, there's clearly he's doing a job. What job are all the people that are voting for him hiring him to do both a functional, but I'd say it's largely an emotional job. What is that emotional job? And I think that if um, the establishment and I put that in quotes can figure out what job they're hiring him to do, they may be able to figure out how to sort of cobble the party back together. But it is uh, agreed very fascinating and, and a writ large example of disruption. All right. Well, Whitney, thank you so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking. Uh, Whitney's book out we've been talking about through this show is Disrupt Yourself. And I'd love to have you come back sometime and talk about your previous book, Dare Dream, Do Remarkable Things Happen When You Dare to Dream. I would love to. Thank you. I had originally thought those are two very different books. And then as I thought more about them, I thought, no, they're, they're just a progression. Yes, <laughs> they are. Um, it was, it's, it's interesting and probably a longer conversation, but yes, I, I didn't even know how they fit together initially, but over time I, I realized that, um, the way they fit together is that dreaming is the engine of disruption and without dreams, it's very, very difficult for us to be willing to disrupt. All right. Well, thank you so much.